Welcome. This is the Technically Podcast. My name is Shep. I'm joined again here by Mike. How are you doing today, Mike? Good as always. Yeah? Do anything interesting this week? I just did absolutely nothing, which is fantastic. Very good, very good. I um, I wa- finally got around to watching the Hamilton uh, musical that's now on the streaming services. Um, don't know if you've seen it, but it's great. Everyone keeps talking about that, and my mother keeps trying to get me to watch that, so... And my wife watched it, so I, I think that maybe I should. <laughs> it, it's worth a few hours of your time. Um, I I would say I'm not a huge fan of musicals; like it's not my favorite thing. But this one is definitely top notch. Like I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the story. I enjoyed the music. I enjoyed like the cast and the choreography. It, it's just a it's a great thing. So give it a shot. I dread musicals, which is kind of why I've been avoiding all the Hamilton stuff. But but it's yeah. history. You I, love I know history. I, I do love history. And that's one of the reasons I think I'll, I'll probably end up watching it. But it's just a musical thing. It's just like, that's not, that's not my cup of tea. Uh, it's all good. Everybody's got their, they got their thing. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go ahead and roll into our, into our news for today. First up, we've got our facial recognition. Uh, we talked about this in our last podcast. Apparently there has come to light another instance of facial recognition leading to a wrongful arrest. Also, I believe it was in Detroit as well, which I think is where the other one happened, which is a little ridiculous, but kind of what's, what's your thoughts on finding another one of these? I mean, it's, I think it's older than the, the previous one uh, that we talked about. So it's, I think we're probably going to run across these a few more times than, you know, than we have so far. Yeah. I I think that we're going to start seeing more come out of the woodwork. I know that they've been kind of centralized in Detroit so far. Um, but I have a feeling that we're going to start seeing things come to light of other cities that have been using facial recognition. The thing that I find rather interesting is that they were talking to the Detroit police chief. Apparently he thinks that these are like remarkably inaccurate that now I don't know where he's getting this number. If it's just kind of like how he feels and anecdotally what he's seen, or if there's actual measurements, but he said it's about 96% inaccurate like it's going to give it a false identification 96 percent of the time being being that the police chief is the one talking about how inaccurate this is i'm surprised that they were using it as long as they have been or at all yeah it makes me wonder if there wasn't maybe like a like a an order from up high maybe like a mayor or something said oh we bought this technology you're going to use it who knows um i don't know that for a fact but i wonder if there's something somewhere along the chain that somebody said, hey, we've got access to this, we've paid for this, whatever it may be. You need to use it. Find a use for it. Yeah, but you think they would, you know, at least review and test it out before they put it into production. I mean, who doesn't do that in a technology world? At least at least I would <laughs> you, hope. You would think so, but uh, so much of the world is still just behind the times in technology, hands down. Right, yeah, it totally is. I, I personally, I don't trust most governments, whether they're local or federal, to be able to either use or uh, legislate technology properly. They just don't understand it. I think it's hard to legislate something that it's not your realm of expertise. I think it's hard hard to comprehend a lot of things that you're not you know, aware of when it comes to stuff like that. Absolutely. I, I completely agree. It's very difficult. All right. Next up, we've got the UK government, which is 
purchased or which has purchased a substantial stake in the ISP slash satellite company OneWeb. Um, they are a, a competitor to Starlink. They are also doing the low orbit satellites for delivering uh, connections down to people at, you know, reasonable latencies, unlike your typical satellite internet. Um, but yeah, like what, what's your thoughts here? Like why would the UK want to buy a satellite ISP company? I've heard several things about that. And a lot of my thoughts actually come from a Scott Manley video where he talks about that it's very possible that maybe the UK wants to remain, you know, in the space race, especially since leaving the EU and also maintaining our work, maybe converting these satellites to a, a GPS style system, because since leaving the EU, they I, I don't know if they're part of that project anymore. And that be that could be why they're they're thinking about purchasing this. Yeah, I've I've heard talk of that as well. And I think that that I think that Scott Manley is an obviously very smart guy. And I think he's right on with that that thought process. For me, like I see this kind of as like a like you were saying, like a, an attempt to stay relevant, to to stay on the world stage when it comes to the space race. Because them leaving the EU, they've they've lost a lot of their pull and a lot of their leverage that they would have otherwise had. Now, I also heard that they recently lost a contract, like either maybe within the same day or within a few days, they had lost bidding on a contract to build the next evolution of like the gps satellites that the eu is building so if that's the case this is like kind of a not a great thing that's happening like they're barely getting by by buying a half a billion dollar stake in another company is that contract for the purpose of building satellites for the european space whatever they're called uh, yeah <laughs> I can't the european think of the space name. agency <laughs> yeah that um is that for building the satellites for them the bid was, it was for the, I forget the name of the GPS replacement or, or the GPS program, their equivalent in the ESA, but it was for six satellites that they were going to put up for their new constellation that they're working on. And so they lost that. Now, as for this ISP, a lot of people are kind of scratching their head. Like what, what purpose does the UK have for an ISP? Um, not a whole lot of purpose just for the ISP side of things. They are, like you said, they're talking about using them as GPS satellites, which these satellites were not designed to do as they're currently designed. So not sure exactly how they're going to fit that in on the bus, because it's not like you just bolt the GPS module to it. It's, you know, it's core to like how you do power management and heat, like satellites are complicated. So we'll have to see what they're able to do. There was also talk that um, the UK was doing this as a, a way to advance their their advanced manufacturing base, like to build that up. But these satellites are already being produced actually over here in the United States in Florida, uh, ironically. They are being produced here in Florida. And so to move a complicated factory to the UK, that seems unlikely. It's not cheap to do something like that, obviously. I don't know what they're trying to get at with that. And, and it prevents production from being done when you're moving that the production facility. Absolutely. I, I know um, I, Scott Manley mentioned that there were some Chinese companies interested in the purchase of OneWeb. And this could have been to help prevent the acquisition by a Chinese company. So that's very possible. I wonder, was, was OneWeb actually a UK-based company? 
I think it's actually based know. in the United States, but I think they have an office in London, and, and okay. that might be why. Well, in in the case of like what is obviously kind of a you know cold adversary, if you will, with both the U.S. and the U.K., I'm kind of surprised that the U.S. wouldn't have stepped in as well. Like they did that with Tinder, I think it was, and the the sale of that app because it would have been able to be used to track people in the U.S. So. I kind of wonder, like like you said, I think it makes perfect sense that the UK may have been like, hey, no, this is, you know, something that we were hoping to to use or to rely on. And we don't want our economic and uh, such advertisers, our political adversary in China to have control over it. That is one of the things I did note in the uh, the contract that was written up in their purchase of a substantial st- share. They maintain right of first refusal so that they can say, no, you're not allowed to sell to another company. They also contain or also retain the ability to limit which countries have access when the platform does go live. So that very much seems to be in line with what you were saying there. Absolutely. So the other thing that we're seeing is there's some uncertainty around when these satellites will actually go up. Not only because now they're talking about implementing geolocation hardware into this satellite, but now they're also having to deal with how we're going to actually launch these things. Initially, they were to go on some Ariane 6 flights that were scheduled for later this year, but have been delayed due to the the issues around the pandemic and the sickness that everyone's been facing as an economy. So there's some uncertainty there, like when they're actually going to launch. Um, you know, we'll, we'll have to see. I heard they might, or they were thinking about launching them from the UK. I'm not sure how that's going to work with, I have friends in the UK who say, that is pretty cloudy a lot of the times. So I'm not sure how that's going to work or if they'll continue to launch them from other places. That is interesting. I'm I'm not sure what their what their relationship is with the ESA anymore because obviously they're not part of the EU. But I'm curious if they're still like a member of the ESA and that they have pool there because that would be important. Like they as far as I know, the UK does not have their own orbital space launch system at all. Like they were, they were part of the ESA and, and the Ariane 6 program, but I don't think that they have their own standalone program, which is a problem. I'm also not so sure about launching from the UK itself. That's kind of a high inclination. Uh, that's, that's outside of where you normally would want to ro- launch a rocket if you're trying to be efficient. Right. Of course. Yeah. Oh, no, sorry. I was, uh, I was thinking about something else. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I know the UK has our at least something was mentioned about uh, launching the satellites off of a plane somehow. I'm vaguely familiar with this uh, to get it into orbit where they they basically strap the rocket to the bottom of a plane. They fly the plane really high. And then uh, I don't, I I mean, don't know if Sir I got Sir def- Richard Branson has some ideas around that. So why not? He's, and I think he's, he's from British. the UK. <laughs> yeah. So like, sure. I'm sure that Sir Richard Branson could strap a rocket to a plane and send it off into space. We'll see. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Like on on another space story, uh, we have recently heard that NASA and, um, of course, Boeing, because they were, I'm sure, involved in it, has completed their investigation of that first orbital flight test of the Starliner capsule. There were a number of things they found. The, the major one, which actually is, is what contributed to like a mission failure, if you will, because they were not able to maintain the orbit they intended, um, was that their clock 
had an 11 hour time skew. Um, so when it was supposed to be doing things, it probably thought it was still on the ground. Um, that's a problem. The other thing that they found in this investigation was that there was a software bug that would have resulted in the service module running into the crew capsule after it separated. Luckily that didn't happen because ground control managed to intervene, but that would have happened. So that's a big problem. And then on top of all of this, they had problems with intermittent communication between the vehicle and the ground. So there was a whole bunch of things that could have gone really, really wrong, which you really don't want when you've got people. No, no. It's, it's a good thing that they have, you know, a good ground, ground crew. Luckily, there's nobody in the capsule and they're actually doing testing. Otherwise, it could have been, you know, an Apollo 13 moment or Apollo 11. Which one was it? 13. Yeah, 13 is the one we managed to recover. Um, the issue that I see is these mistakes to me feel like they've gone through the, the traditional software development process, which I'm sure something like Starliner is probably pushing a million or two lines of code. It's, it's by no means, I'm sure, a small project. The problem that I see with it, though, is they're almost certainly using uh, what NASA termed traditional software methods, which to me says like a waterfall type method where you've, you define everything up ahead of time and then you just write the code. Whereas SpaceX tends to test things very often, see what blows up and change it. Like that's their process. Whereas Boeing tends to be a little more slow and methodical. Problem is Boeing is having to operate on SpaceX's timeline now. SpaceX is pushing the process and the, the time that it takes to actually get a capsule up into space they're vastly suppressed or compressing it probably somewhere in the realm of like twice as fast, maybe even more. I don't think Boeing is able to keep up while maintaining their so-called traditional software methods. That's an interesting thought. I actually haven't thought of it that way being pushed by SpaceX. I think I was just going to say, I think you're, uh, you're correct. That totally makes sense. And normally competition is good, but when it comes to something, you know, that could cost humans or lives like this, that, that sounds kind of bad now that you're saying that. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where I'm I'm glad that NASA is providing oversight. And obviously NASA is the only the only, you know, group among us that's actually sent people to the moon, which I know is the ultimate goal with all of this to go back there. The issue I see is what NASA did is they focused heavily on SpaceX because of their untraditional or less traditional software methods software development methods. They focused more on SpaceX because they were not familiar rather than because it was better or worse, right? The reason in the software industry, and obviously things have changed a ton since the Apollo missions, or even frankly, since like the Atlas systems were built many, many years ago, so much has changed in software development since that time that we have learned there's better ways to do this that are more efficient that actually come out better and safer, but they seem a little reckless if you're not familiar with them. You know, testing more often, testing how things integrate more often. That was one of the issues that was brought up is like, hey, if we had done a full end-to-end -end test before we launched this, we would have discovered that our clock was half a day late. Like, that's a big deal. That's that's on the order of the the Mars lander that crashed into the moon because, or into Mars because the 
the like what was I think it was measured in meters everywhere except in one part of the code. <laughs> like that is a elementary level mistake, in my opinion. Like if you had even the most basic tests, you would have realized, hey, that ain't gonna work. Um, so that's one of the things that was brought up as like a critique. They did not do end-to-end testing before they actually launched it. They did a lot of seemingly like focused or piecemeal. Like we're going to test this one system in isolation and this one system in isolation and assume that their interfaces will work correctly. The other thing is apparently their testing software that was running these simulations also had bugs. <laughs> so if you're, if you're testing software that you're running simulations on versus just shooting a rocket into space and see what happens, if that doesn't represent the real world, you're going to have a hard time. It's definitely good that they started testing and actually launched it to do these actual tests. Oh yeah. NASA NASA's not going to accept shooting people into space on what is effectively a giant column of explosives <laughs> without at least one successful test to orbit. Like right. let's be honest here. What's pretty amazing to me is how how they can land these, you know, devices in a specific place. Like this one they landed it in the White Sands missile testing range. It's pretty cool how they they're able to even though it wasn't the mission that they set it for wasn't 100% complete they were still able to divert it to a specific, to land at a specific spot. Yeah, they weren't able to reach their target orbit. They were still able to go around the Earth. Um, which, I mean, hey, that's still very hard. But yeah, mm-hmm. as far as like the landing goes, that's actually a pretty reasonably well-known calculation. That, that's a ballistic traje- trajectory down from space. Like, yeah, you, you can't get super accurate, I imagine, because just wind and, you know, variations in like thicknesses of atmosphere in certain areas and variations of gravitational fields i'm sure that there are problems that make it harder but yeah we can totally hit like a spot on the earth that's not too hard better than what i can do in kerbal space program well yeah that's that's kerbal space <laughs> program though i mean okay we're talking about nasa the people who shot a satellite at pluto and actually made it <laughs> that's, that's we're a talking about we're shot. talking about I, I i forget the the terminology or the the i forget the analogy they use it was something like you know making a hole in one from like the moon or something like it's it's ridiculous the level of accuracy you have to be like you can do it, it it's obviously something we have we have math we have the math to do thank god for math indeed so <laughs> i guess what kind of came of this this whole investigation there's a total of about 80 things but what kind of came from this investigation is they need to do more oversight obviously they need to focus more with Boeing and less with SpaceX because they had shifted apparently a lot of their oversight over to watching SpaceX simply because they weren't familiar with it. So maybe this time we will focus our attention a little bit better. I do find it a little bit interesting that Boeing not only got less oversight, but they got more money to do the same program and they failed. I mean, they're still in the process, but in reality, given their 40, 50 years of experience doing this, they should have they should have been the first ones to the space station. All, all the smart money would have been on that. But times have changed. Absolutely has. And I, I think Boeing's space program is actually way more expensive, obviously, because SpaceX can, you know, reuse their 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 launch modules. Yes, there's obviously there's the capital cost there, but as far as like their development process as well. Just they're they're far more like vertically integrated. They build everything themselves in basically their own factories, whereas Boeing is using a lot of contractors and things like that. 
it's definitely harder from that aspect. Absolutely. All right. Moving on to something a little lighter, uh, something that won't, you know, cause people to explode in the sky. Um, but might cause your, your MacBook to break. Apparently the tolerances on the new 16 inch MacBook, and I think it's specifically limited to this one, but I'm sure there are also issues with other ones that these tolerances are so small that if you put one of those little sliding camera covers on your MacBook, it might just break your display. It might crack it. Like what? I'm not sure why Apple hasn't added a, you know, a kill switch for their cameras. My, I mean, my basic HP laptop has a kill switch. That is a perfectly good question. I have no idea either. Apparently, I like I was looking into this. Apparently, they claim that the light cannot turn off without the camera being off. And I don't know if you can still use the camera, like if the if the LED breaks. But as was brought up in like Ooh, a thread I was reading, I think it was yeah, like as I as I was brought up in a, a hacker news thread I was reading, just because you have the light doesn't mean a whole lot. Because the light informs you that recording is happening. Not it's not like a light that you can tell tell it's going to happen, right? It's not a preventative measure. It's just informing you, hey, by the way, your privacy has been violated. Right. And someone could quickly take a picture of you. And right, you could flick it on and off real fast. Right. And I think with I think there's a module in Metasploit that will actually take a picture of someone that if if you compromise their their machine. And I think from my SANS class, he said that it would quickly, it's almost too quick to see the flash of the camera light letting you know that the picture was taken. It's something like that. Yeah, because LEDs take a minute to warm up, right? Like they take even a couple hundred milliseconds to get to full brightness. So if you just take a quick picture, you may not even get, you know, a tenth of the way to being on before the power's cut. Right. And you may not even notice it. You may not be paying attention. You may be looking away or something mm-hmm. and you don't even see it. I think kill switches are, are should be almost mandatory on most laptops. Yeah, I would I would argue that I agree with that. Um, I mean, I personally on all of my laptops on my iPad, I have had an EFF Electronic Frontier Foundation, EFF.org. I have had one of their privacy stickers on my laptop for like five years now. The same sticker. Right. They're reusable. I love them. They're super thin. They're definitely not thick enough to break your screen. No, that that would definitely help maintain the integrity of your screen. Definitely recommend those stickers. So yeah, go over there. They're like five bucks for a sheet of them. I think they just released a new one. So they're a little bit running behind on printing, especially with everything happening in the world right now. Go over there. Stop sending money to buy a plastic slidey thing. Just buy a little sticker. It looks better than your blue painter's tape or your electrical tape. And you're also helping out a good cause. Absolutely is. Those are great ones. On a completely like separate note, but somewhat related, while I was researching for this article, I found out that the newer MacBooks, as well as the newer iPads, they, when you close with a magnetic cover, or if you close the laptop itself, the little magnet that turns off the screen also physically disconnects the microphone. Really? Yeah. That's so really cool. That's super cool. Of course, you have to trust trust Apple that it's working, but you'd have to trust like a switch actually does something too. Um, like that's super cool. I didn't know that. It's apparently only happened with some of the 2019 and 2020, like the newer models. So like my old MacBook from five, six years ago is not going to have it. But like, that's a really cool idea. Like, why aren't more people doing that? Great idea. 
so it has to be done with with an actual magnet though so you it wouldn't work yeah. if you just turn the screen off no like if you just turn the screen down no like you have to actually shut it um and that's only for the microphone like they for the camera they obviously just like okay you covered it with a screw with a case or you shut the lid you're not going to see the camera but the microphone part because people are concerned right people are like hey you know, my device is listening to me all the time. Well, if you have a physical switch that gets tripped by the microphone or by the by the magnet that happens anyways when you when you just close the screen, that's cool. That is cool. That's really cool. All right. So go get your stickers from EFF.org. <laughs> now, next up, we've got another case of backdoors. I, I don't think we'll ever run out of these. No. Um, they're just that's the world. But we've got a, a case of backdoors on what is effectively not quite your modem, but like where your fiber line would come into your house on these fiber to the home, like optical, optical cable internets. It's becoming more popular, at least from the ISPs. What's your thoughts on this, man? Honestly, I wonder if this was a, a development issue. Like they forgot to remove certain accounts when they were developing this. Cause I know sometimes stuff like that will get missed. However, it's, it's still kind of concerning. <laughs> It is super suspicious. Um, so digging into this, um, there were four username password combos that they managed to find. There were probably more. And like, if that was it, if that alone was what they found, I, I would be a little more inclined that, okay, maybe someone accidentally left some credentials hard-coded. Like, that's happened to, I think, every developer who's ever anything more than like a Hello World or a List application. You've, mm-hmm. you've accidentally included something in your code. It happens. However, oh, go ahead. However, the thing that I also saw was that they're not using basic security for like their web management console. It's only running in HTTP. They're using Telnet instead of SSH. So there's no security there. It's very easy to intercept these communications. Um, also, apparently, once you log in with one of these, with one of these username and password combos with one of these credentials that they found you can use the cli that you logged into because you now have full root access to also dump the clear text of other admins on the box what for those because we haven't mentioned it before uh the vendor is c data right they are they're a, a like a white label provider for a lot of isps um they are the ones who build that like i said that box it's not quite your modem but it's it's what your fiber terminates to at your house. Also, something interesting that was in the article that we'll post into the the show notes is they really didn't use any type of, you know, modern encryption to encrypt the passwords. It was just a basic XOR. Yeah. Which you should not you should use the math that always has been proven over time to encrypt your stuff. I mean, yeah, I've also made a Caesar cipher and um yeah, they're not particularly secure. So I don't think I would ever use an XOR encryption either. Right. <laughs> it's amazing. So yeah, like this is apparently the the researchers who found this, there are enough glaringly bad things like the vulnerabilities, like the fact that you can access the web portal without any kind of security. You can access it from the WAN port itself as well. So like this is p- open public to the internet. The fact that there are this many like vulnerabilities in this one instance with this firmware 
the vulnerabilities were not disclosed before the researchers came forward. They feel that this was too obvious to not be malicious. They did uh, feel it was, I have mixed feelings on not releasing it, even if not telling the vendor before releasing it, just because who knows how many how many of these devices are actually out there in people's homes. Yeah. So giving them the chance to at least remediate, even though it was possibly malicious, just to protect the people that have these in their homes. Yeah, and I, I can understand both sides of that coin. Like, from the researcher's standpoint, if they had disclosed this and it was done maliciously, it would not be hard for them to reach out to every one of these boxes and update the firmware and to change all of it. To go, oh, well, look, it's fixed. Those logins don't work, but now we have new ones. Like, it would not have been that hard to do. So I understand the concern, particularly when you're talking about an unknown uh, actor in another country. I can get why people do it. Personally, I would have tried to find out who's actually using these boxes. They did mention that there's a lot of white labels on these boxes, so you never really know if your ISP is using one of these C data boxes underneath of it all. But I would have tried to reach out at least to some of the large ISPs that you know are doing fiber to the home here in the States and be like, hey, did you know about this? Did you know that these backdoors with these passwords having have been in your code, have been in your systems, that they could crash your network on the, pro on the public WAN port? I would have come to them first and let them decide, hey, is this something that we as a ISP have purview to, to alter? Because sometimes, yeah, sometimes the ISPs actually have the permission and the code to actually go in and edit the code on the box. If they had that, great. If not, then they can approach their vendor and be like, hey, uh, we want all our money back or you're going to do exactly what we tell you to and we're going to audit your code. There, there are other ways around it, for sure. I think that approaching the ISP was probably the better way. I'm, I'm not sure who these researchers were, but it, I think that would, that would honestly be the best way. I completely agree. So next up on the topic of spying, <laughs> um, more spying as yay, more spies. Um, as we've seen with the new iOS 14 beta, that's been had a limited release to the number of people who've opted into it. There are a ton of applications who have been caught copying from your clipboard. Most notable among these has been TikTok because, well, like a billion people use it or something. Um, and so all of these people who upgraded to iOS 14 now get this spam of like dozens of notifications that TikTok is copied from your clipboard as you're typing. Like what? Like, why? Okay. They say it's because they want to like do text prediction and prevent spam or something. Okay, fine. But still stop doing it. But... The issue is now we have a U.S. company doing it. We have also seen that LinkedIn is also copying from your clipboard. What's your take here, man? It's amazing to me. So the article that we'll also link here, it says that it was a software bug that was causing this. How do you accidentally make software that copies the clipboard? Do you like trip, fall, hit the keyboard, and then it <laughs> starts copying people's clipboards? Like, how, how does that work? Uh, yeah, I'm I'm not sure about the bug thing either. Um what I have heard discussion around is that it's actually a, a library that a lot of these apps are using that's causing this to happen. That makes more sense. 
that would definitely make more sense. And if you, if it was kind of transparent, if it wasn't something that you could see before, I could understand as a developer how that was overlooked if it was part of a library. If it was deliberately built in, we have a different problem. Right, and I don't know of too many software developers that will go back to a well-known library, go through the code, and you know, verify whatever it's doing. Right. I mean, most most people don't audit their libraries they bring in. Let's be honest. Um, yeah. It's actually one of the biggest concerns when it comes to secure software. Especially open source. I mean, having flashbacks to that first episode in this Docker containers, man. Oh, yes, that's, like, that's totally right. Like, people just trust things that have words in them. Like, it's just how it works. Let's hope LinkedIn didn't just trust random worded libraries. Let's hope. So... <laughs> My my big concern here, yes, there's the, the privacy aspect that, oh, they're reading your clipboard. They might be seeing what you type. You're typing into the app. They can see what you're typing. That, okay, fine. Like, just expect that that's going to happen. They're going to read what you're typing. The issue I have when it comes to grabbing from the clipboard is password managers. Every password manager I know of, either within the app itself or expecting you to do it manually, has you copy and paste your password. That's a problem. And they would know your master key, especially if using something like LastPass, because I think they have a master key, which allows you to get into your other ones. They, LastPass does have a master key. However, they don't allow you to, like, it's not something you copy and paste. So it should never end up on your clipboard unless you're stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, let me, let me, let me, like, clarify that. If you store your master password in plain text on your computer that you then copy and paste into your password manager. Stop it now. Please stop. Go <laughs> go make a new master password first off because your old one is no longer worth anything. And like if you have a hard time remember you don't have to make 30 characters of like some gibberish. Make a sentence. Like literally just like eight words that mean something to you. Make a sentence. That's like a hundred bits of entropy. You'll be fine. If you want to be a little more secure and still use real words, go get, go do the diceware thing. Go roll some dice or you can like, there's a web generator now, but go roll some dice and look it up on a list and you know, you'll have something like, you know, correct horse battery staple. Don't use that, but that'll be the idea. Like you have, you have a set of words and that will provide you with far more entry P than a really difficult to remember string. Is that an XKCD reference? It is. I'll, I'll link it in the show notes. <laughs> All right. I love that. I love that one. So, yeah, I have a big problem with the fact that they're grabbing the keyboard and that that is the primary way that password managers will store your password temporarily. So I'm super glad that none of the ones that have come forward, I actually have installed on my phone because otherwise I'd be like super paranoid and have to like rotate all my passwords. But the other side of this equation, and I haven't seen this for TikTok, but I, I saw this in the, the LinkedIn article. Apparently, it's not just grabbing it from the clipboard on your phone. Because of the way the Mac ecosystem works, it can also grab the clipboard from your MacBook. Oh, yeah, that's right. Like, what the hell, man? Like, I totally get having integration, be able to, like, send text messages, like, through through iMessage or whatever. Like, I do Signal on my, like, all my computers and my phone. Like, mm-hmm. I get it. I love that integration and being able to... But you don't have to have low-level operating system access to do that. Like, why, why, Apple, am I allowed to copy from my MacBook to my iDevice? That doesn't make sense to me. I'm sorry. <laughs> the, the ecosystem that Apple has is pretty amazing, but sometimes it may be just too integrated <laughs> at that point. 
Yes. And, you know, the phrase, one bad apple spoils a whole bunch. When you have a problem on your iPhone, it can now affect your MacBook, apparently. That's a pretty uh, pretty funny analogy for... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, apples. Uh-huh. Anyways, <laughs> moving on to our next one. If you haven't heard, just, like, remove LinkedIn and TikTok and all the other ones you can find for right now. Like, I love memes, too. It's not worth it right now. Like, let's let's get things figured out. Let's have them fix their, their apps first. Moving on to our next one. We have, again, privacy-related. It's a little more ephemeral. Most people aren't going to encounter this on the day-to-day. But apparently Australia and the UK have opened an investigation into the Clearview AI company. What, what, what does Clearview do? Like, are, are you familiar with that, Mike? I'm not too familiar with Clearview. It's actually, honestly, the first time I, I heard about it. But from my understanding, they do web scraping. They collect data from the internet. It's basically what all the other big tech companies do at this point, <laughs> minus the web scraping, right. of course. Unless you go cool. Yeah, like a lot of a lot of your search engines scrape the web. Like that's just how it works. It's far better than than linked index pages. However, I think the difference is what they're using it for. Right? It's it's one thing for Google to scrape the web and find things out about you to sell you, I don't know, shoes. Like it's one thing for for Google to do that. It's a whole nother thing for a company to scrape publicly accessible information and then sell that information to police departments. Because that's what's happening with this Clearview company. They claim that they're 100% accurate. I'll call bullshit on that right now. Nothing is 100% accurate. Um, Like, even if you have 10 nines worth of accuracy, you're going to screw up, and there's 7.8 billion people or whatever now. You're going to screw up somebody's life. So they claim that they're super accurate, but... There's a problem. There are a number of countries and even some states where you cannot just collect somebody's information and use it in that fashion. It's just not allowed. I wonder if they sold any uh, pictures to the Detroit Police Department. Okay. I don't know. However, one thing I have seen, while they're not 100% accurate with Clearview, they are pretty damn accurate. Um, They are probably one of the better as far as facial recognition goes. But the issue is how they go about getting their information. So I generally agree that if you put something out on the internet, you should just consider it public. That's how I've operated for years. Even like a a private Facebook page or private post somewhere, if it is no longer, you know, if it's on the internet, you no longer control it. Just expect that when it comes to information. However, when we talk about then taking that public information, compiling it, and basically building like a a fingerprint for somebody's life, for somebody's digital life, and then being able to use that for law enforcement where you haven't actually been convicted of anything. Like they just allege that you might do something. Maybe they just want to find you and talk to you. The fact that that there exists a giant database that some private companies put together and is now selling to governments, I have a big problem with that. Even if, you know, oh, they're, they're only using it for law enforcement. Well, that's not that far of a jump to selling to a repressive regime. It's really not that far. It's only one more step at that point. Also, going back, kind of mixing this story and the previous one, kind of just touching on what you said, I wonder if at any time in the past, if the data collection, if there was any data collection on the copying of the clipboards, if that was actually used in, I guess, either selling the data or giving it to law enforcement to to use in some, in some way. 
I I could see that. I mean, I don't know that I don't know that Clearview would have that, but maybe you're saying like the other companies might have been doing that. Right, just something you said kind of maybe think about uh, I guess go back to that and kind of think of hmm, maybe I wonder if that has ever been the case. I wouldn't write it off. But on this kind of note of Clearview, the whole issue I have with them is they are a private company that's really not responsible to anyone except their shareholders. And they are very much driven to, like where Google wants to collect all the data and organize it. It seems to me from what I've heard of like interviews with like the the owner and founder of, of Clearview, he's very much like that, but for like everyone's identity. Like being able to identify any person anytime is kind of their purview. Like it's kind of their their thing. And I have a problem with that. Like it's one thing to say, okay, I'm going to put up a, a bit of a public persona. It's another thing to then use that in law enforcement. I don't think that that's, I think that that's stepping a, a step too far on that line. So what I'm seeing here is like, we finally got some, some national governments. We've got Australia and the UK opening investigations. Um, we have Twitter you know, Google and YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Venmo. I'm sure there are other companies that are not listed here that have gone to Clearview and been like, hey, stop it. This is violating our terms of service. You're not allowed to just scrape our users' data. You're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to use our service our service for that. Then you have, interestingly, um, the ACLU is putting in a suit in Illinois against this company. Now, I'm assuming it's probably a U.S. company. Otherwise, it's very difficult to sue somebody in, in a state court. I'm not sure if it is or not. Uh, it It is interesting that, I guess it's a combination of it because I know the Australians in UK were actually looking at it, but it's... Mm-hmm. I, I wonder if there are localities, like local local businesses that they've set up in order to operate in these areas. Uh, that's that's definitely possible. It's interesting to me how you how companies will allow you to get scraped by Google, but not by somebody else. But I, I know that the purpose is for something like Google is you want people to find you. Right. And and on their financial side, they're selling ads. Like, yeah, that's that's kind of eh, not a big fan of being, you know, tracked to, you know, optimally sell me shit. I'm totally not a big fan of that. However, that's vastly different than someone using it to serve a warrant. Right. And collecting the data and not actually serving a purpose to the site that they're collecting the data from. Right. I'm interested to see, and I haven't heard anything about it. I'm interested to see what like the GDPR says, like where this applies, because on top of you're not allowed to just like collect information from somebody and they're allowed to tell you you have to delete them. What about data sovereignty laws? And I I wonder if that's what's ultimately going to come down with Australia and the UK, if they have like some data sovereignty laws that says, well, you can't store data on our users outside of our country. I think those are actually positive improvements. Like, I like them. It, it makes business harder, but okay, suck it up, your business. So we'll have to see where that kind of comes from it. Like, like the ACLU suit happening in Illinois law, it has to do explicitly around collection of biometric data without consent. So in Illinois, if you're going to collect biometric data of any kind, you have to get explicit per- permission and consent from the person. I'm sure there's probably exclusions when it comes to things like fingerprinting a criminal. Otherwise, what criminal would say, yeah, go ahead and fingerprint me and and do a DNA swab. However, I think you can't collect that data before you at least have an alleged crime. Also, on the the note of collecting biometric data, that kind of messes up 
two-factor authentication because two-factor authentication is something you know and something you have. So yeah, it definitely could be used that way. I I say it definitely could be used that way. I I do think that we actually need to get better at biometric data. Um, one of the reasons why I switched from my Pixel, I had a Pixel three, I think it was. I think it was the one that that's no, I had a Pixel four. That was the one that they really really were talking about. You know, oh, it's got great facial recognition. We removed the fingerprint fingerprint reader, which I thought was a terrible terrible idea. But they removed the fingerprint reader and they went solely based off facial recognition. I'm not entirely anti-facial recognition. The problem I had was that it was based almost entirely off of just the picture. Whereas, and this is why I switched to my iPhone, the iPhone uses like the dot mapping process. Like it actually projects infrared dots onto your face, maps it out, and it actually has like a depth map from that. You don't have any kind of good depth map, even with two cameras, you know, spread a couple inches apart at the top of a phone. You really don't have a very good depth map to work with there. The other thing that got me was that you could unlock the phone with your eyes closed as like a, a, as a Google Pixel user. Like that that's, defeats the point to me. Like if somebody can just hold the phone up to my face while I'm asleep, that's not secure. Did that work if you used a picture? I never tested it with a picture but I did test it with my eyes closed. Um, it also required proper lighting, so I couldn't use it at night, which was kind of a pain in the ass. Like, if I want to read in my bed, like, I don't want to have to, like, type in my, you know, I know I'm not supposed to read in my bed, but <laughs> if I want to read in my bed, I have to type in my password on my on my Apple phone, or on my Pixel phone, whereas, like, the Apple phone, since it projects an infrared grid on my face, it's totally like, okay, cool, you're, you're you. Yeah, that's that's way better than not being able to use it at all. Yeah. So anyways, on the, on the collection of biometric data, like, I think that that is, like you said, I think that that is a, a cautionary thing, um, particularly in the realm of like deep fakes and being able to like, yeah, there will be a future where that will be even worse. But I think right now the big thing is as a society, we need to make it very much a rule that you are not allowed to collect information on people about who that person is that identifies who that person is without their consent. I think that that's just like a common sense thing we just need to write into law. I totally agree. All right, moving on. We've got one last thing. It's kind of kind of lighter and it's a little more a little more fun and interesting, I guess you could say. Intel has released the new specifications for their Thunderbolt 4. Now, most people who are familiar with Thunderbolt will probably think of something like a MacBook or maybe your laptop. A lot of the newer laptops that have Intel chips have Thunderbolt in them. Now we've got Thunderbolt 4, which really hasn't changed a whole lot, but we're now talking about a vastly more bandwidth capabilities from a single cable, and that cable can now go further at those speeds. So right now I have a, I have a dock, a Thunderbolt dock that connects to my MacBook. It has this tiny little three-foot cable. So like I have to have my MacBook in like one spot on my desk. There's no other place. However, going forward, they're going to give us not only six foot long cables, but the ability to run more displays. So right now I can run a single 4K display off of a, off of a Thunderbolt port. You're going to be able to do two, or you're going to be able to do an 8K display. You're also going to be able to do vastly more speed from 16 gigabit to 32 gigabit off of one single cable. I'm super looking forward to this, not just from like, okay, I have a MacBook and probably the, I probably won't be able to buy a MacBook with the ARM stuff coming forward. But that's a different mm -hmm. thing. So, like, I'm a big fan of any improvements on 
kind of the concept of interconnectivity. Like I love the idea of being able to have a super fast communication with like, say a rate of SSDs, uh, in a NAS. So I don't know if you're interested, if like this seems interesting to you, but like, I am super interested. I do love the support for 4k and 8k. I'm not sure the viability of 8k because 4k, I know the text is already really small and you have to blow it up anyway. So I wonder what 8k would be used for if not for monitors or you know, even TVs, you're going to be able to see every dot on someone's face when you're watching a movie. Well, there's already an argument to be said for TV wise, like at the distance and the size you look at a TV, like anything over, honestly, 1080p is probably a little overkill, but definitely anything over 4k, you're just not gonna be able to tell the difference. Not, not from 10 feet away. Um, the big advantage I can see for 8k is actually in the medical field. Ooh, so yeah. yeah, like if you want to, you know, look at a an x-ray having an 8k monitor is optimal like that that's that's a far bigger step it's four times as much resolution as a 4k which was four times as much as a as a standard hd so like any improvements there will be totally worth it and that's probably why like an 8k screen is gonna be like ten thousand dollars when it first comes out (laughs) yes the only people who will be able to afford it are radiologists but like i can see that now as far as like everyday average person yeah i think we've reached consumer peak performance when it comes to monitors. I personally do not have a 4K screen anymore. I gave it away because I had to just run it at, uh, I think I ran it at 2560 by 1440. So I had to run it at a lower resolution anyways, just to be able to read the text. So now I just buy a monitor that's 1440p and I just use that. Um, Going forward, I'm probably will no longer have a choice not to buy a 4K or maybe eventually an 8K in the far off future. Going forward, smaller pixels, at least like 4K kind of got there of being able to run a non-native resolution and it not bother not bother me. Like if the pixels are small enough, I can deal with a non-native resolution. I do, for this cable, I do like the transfer speeds. And I'm sure from computer to something else, it's pretty amazing. It's 32 gigabits a second. Yeah, which comes out to something around three gigabytes per second. That kind of speed... Because, I mean, already you can get 10 gigabit uh, networking between, like, your NAS and your workstation. So, already with 10 gigabit, you can do, like, 4K video and you can, like, scrub it pretty much in real time in, like, an editing software. Something like 32 gigabit, you could probably do that pretty easily with 8K footage. Maybe even whatever comes after that. Yeah, transferring data in the, actually, it seems like in the near future is going to be, it's going to be pretty quick, at least locally. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to seeing what neat little peripherals. One thing I've been very impressed with in the Thunderbolt 3 ecosystem is just how, because they were relatively open with it, and I think they've actually now uh, opened the patents entirely, but they were relatively open when it came to the specifications and letting other people build it into their systems. Like, you didn't have to have an Intel chip. One of the things I'm looking forward to is where the ecosystem goes from now, or goes from here. So... I love the fact that for my MacBook, I have a single cable. That cable powers my MacBook. It connects it to my two monitors. It connects it to all my peripherals. Everything is through a single cable. I love it. I I want more things like that. Um, I could foresee a future, maybe one day, where I don't even have a desktop. 
where I just have a single plug that I plug in and it goes off and it runs an external graphics card for when I want a game. It goes off to like a little NAS slash compute cluster if I would need to like do video processing to offload that uh, entirely from my MacBook or my laptop. So like I could see a future where there is just a single cable that runs everything and all of my stuff is on one computer effectively. So I have a question. Is it, so I, I, I have a Dell uh, dock that connects to my Dell laptop and I plug my mouse and keyboard into that dock on here, which we'll link in the show notes for people listening. It says one of the things that delivers is you can wake your computer by touching the mouse or keyboard when you're connected to a Thunderbolt dock. Was that not the case before? I've never. Okay. I'm not sure. Actually, I haven't tested that because normally when I, like, I wonder what they mean by wake. Do they just mean like the display went off, like turned off? Because that I've always been able to do. I very regularly like lock my Mac and just let it go to sleep. But it's not like MacBooks are never really fully asleep. It feels like they have like a, a polling where they'll actually check like Wi-Fi and, and keep up to date on notifications and even download updates while they're closed until you turn them off. I see. So I'm not sure if that's like a PC focused thing or if that's more like just Thunderbolt in general. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I, I thought it was pretty much you could just wake it up regardless, but maybe I'm wrong. So like one thing I could see with with that kind of idea is like if you had a NAS slash compute cluster that was just sitting on your desk, being able to turn that on when you plug it in would be really cool. I don't think you can do that right now. Oh, uh, maybe that I, that's like being able to boot that up. I know you can turn on monitors, but like HDMI can do that. <laughs> right. Like, I know that you can do things like that, but I don't know. Maybe there's there's plans to have more advanced peripherals connected that way. It's very interesting stuff. I'm pretty excited to see what this delivers. Yeah. I mean, I'm always, I'm always down with new technology, but speaking of new technology, we will be back next week and bring you the new tech news. I hope you have a great day. Have a good one. Thanks for listening. This podcast is hosted by me, Shep Alderson. And Mike Anderson. And it was edited and produced by Shep Alderson. 